we'll welcome Harmon in now. Uh, Harm, thanks very much, because you and Drancer, we were asked last week on the show if we could kind of do a look into this, and as I was doing a look into this, you guys put out two really well-reported articles, uh, which made our job a little easier. So um, if you haven't read them, you should check them out on The Athletic. They were um, sort of dropped both this week. One was looking at the forwards that are available, and one was looking at the defense that are available. Um, first off, let's just sort of set this up for the listener, Harm, if you can. The Canucks have a couple of options here, right? They can either go with ahead of the Seattle expansion draft, they can protect seven forwards, three defense, and one goalie, or they can go eight total skaters and one goalie, correct? Yeah. And based on what you see with their roster, do you think there's any debate which which avenue they go there? No, I don't think so. I think it's uh, pretty easy. Usually you only go with eight skaters over the 7-3-1 format. Um, if you've got a plethora of options on, on the back end, uh, a team like Nashville, Nashville, for instance, back in the day might have resorted to wanting to protect uh, all of their defensemen, so they would have gone the, the eight skaters route. But I think overall, most teams typically opt for the 7-3-1 structure, and I don't think uh, the Canucks would be any different there. And really quickly, so when you look at that, one of the reasons why the Canucks are fascinating is because if you look at the seven three one model, they're probably going to have some spaces that they have available to protect players. They, you know, they're not going to maximize it out. Um, so explain why the Canucks, you know, this this could be weaponized or it could be an advantage for the organization. Right. So I think a lot of the club's key pieces are expansion uh, exempt, meaning you don't have to protect protect them. Uh, and that includes up front Nils Hoaglander. And then on the back end, the big one is Quinn Hughes. And so as a result, if you start on the back end right now, I mean, you look at the, the potential players the Canucks, you know, may want to protect. I mean, Alex Edler is already a pending unrestricted free agent. You don't have to worry about him. The only key key piece there is uh, is Nate Schmidt. And then after that, you're maybe looking at Ole Levy, And then you may have to even go to... Uh, one of your minor league options, because I think the Canucks at the end of the day will want to protect Tyler Myers, but they'd have to, like there's an exposure requirement where uh, you have to expose a certain, uh, a certain amount of defensemen that have played a certain amount of games for you. And I think it would take right. re-signing one of Banner Hamannick to, to protect, to, to be able to protect Myers. Point is, Long-winded way of saying the Canucks don't really have much of anything that they need to protect on the back end beyond Schmidt. So they have one or two protection slots to work with there. And then up front, um, you've obviously got the key guys like Besser, Pedersen, Horvat, Miller. Uh, but beyond that, it gets pretty thin after that. Uh, you maybe include a guy like Tyler Mott, um, maybe a prospect like Cole Lind. But beyond mm-hmm. that, I think there is an opportunity to be able to add one or two forwards as well. Harmon, at the risk of asking a really stupid question in the sense that uh, the players the Canucks should target are good hockey players and, you know, better than the players that they currently have. What types of players, whether it's defensemen or forwards, do you think the Canucks should be targeting or, or fit with the direction that the team is going? Like what types of players with types of play styles? Right. So I think when you look at, let's start with the forwards. When it comes to potential targets, I think you, first and foremost, want to figure out a succession plan for Tanner Pearson. I know Vasily Podkolzin's coming in, and stylistically, he could come in and have a, a similar kind of impact. But you want to, like if Podkolzin comes in and as a rookie simply replaces Pearson, Pearson, 
well, then your roster still didn't, still didn't really improve. So ideally what you can do is find someone through um, an expansion crunch team that can sort of play that Pearson role. And then the Philly pod Colton then becomes a player that adds surplus value. Um, so someone who can sort of stick into your middle six, play reliable two-way hockey, has secondary scoring, scoring touch, uh, probably more of a complementary puck retriever rather than uh, a, uh, a, an independent play and line driver because those just aren't going to be available since most team can, most teams can protect uh, seven forwards. And so as a result, um, I, I think that should be high on the priority list. I think um, a, a third-line center long-term could be an intriguing piece to kind of target because you look at the Canucks this year, um, they've kind of gone with Brandon Sutter, and he's a pending UFA. And, and I think if you want to be a contending team, can't really stick with him in that position for too long. And the alternative is Adam Gaudet, who's been shifted to the wing. I think it's clear at this point that he's not a long-term 3C candidate. And it's important to have that kind of third-line driver to really improve the bottom six of the results, to even take on some of the tougher matchups so you can free up a guy like Bo Horvat. Poor Horvat's still had a carousel of um, more third-line caliber wingers than bona fide top six guys, and he's doing so while taking on uh, elite matchups, starting a ton in his defensive end. And so if you can get competent two-way center um, to be your 3C that can chip in with some offense too, it can drive play, then I think that would really enhance uh, Vancouver's overall lineup balance. So I think those are two potential options up front. Uh, on the back end, it's really interesting because I think ideally the Canucks would want a uh, top four right-handed defenseman to play alongside Quinn Hughes. The problem is they're just in such a shortage uh, relative to lefties. As we went through the expansion, kind of uh, mocking through who each team might protect and leave uh, exposed, there really weren't a lot of right-handed defensemen. So, you know, even though it's ideal for the Canucks to target a righty, they may have to, if they want to improve the back end, look for a lefty and that may seem counterintuitive because yeah, the Canucks have uh, Quinn Hughes um, and, and they also have Jack Rathbone and Ole Levy and, you know, Edler's been with them this year, but you go through each of the options. I mean, with Edler, I think it's, it's been evident this season that his inability to really contribute in transition, how he defends uh, speed off the rush. He's just too slow. I think to be a regular top four defender, um, so I don't think he's really you, – you don't want him ideally to be your second-pair defenseman on the left side next year. And you think of the other options, um, I don't think Ole Levy is going to be quite that player. And Jack Rathbone, I, I think he definitely has top four potential one day, but he may not be that piece as a rookie. So even if there are an abundance of lefties, and, and you may look at the depth chart and say, why would they need another lefty? If you can bring in a second-pairing a second guy who can kind of – stabilize next to Nate Schmidt, play the Alex Edler kind of role, um, then I think it would really improve the Canucks' uh, defense corps. The Athletics' Harmon Dial joining us here on air. Um, looking at defense, Izzy and I have chatted about this for the last few weeks, that when you look at the unrestricted free agents, the Canucks are at risk of losing three between Edler, Ben, and Travis Hamanick. Um, and it's clear, you know, as you pointed out, that Edler's been playing... Um, a lot of minutes for this team, and it's it's probably been more than he should be playing at this point, and going forward, he'll, that'll need to be reduced. 
when you look at the list of defenders that are out there, are there any that sort of line up with with what you think would fit in the top four? Um, you know, I'm looking at your list, and I look at Hayden Fleury in, Cal- in Carolina. Um, I know he can play both left or right. Does that flexibility make him more attractive? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a, a player like Hayden Fleury, especially how um cheap he is just making 1.3 million um is is really intriguing um the one that i really liked in call out in colorado um is uh is ryan graves and the reason he kind of pikes my interest is because if you look at vancouver's top four stylistically they're currently very offensively calibrated when you look at quinn hughes when you look at tyler myers these are guys that can help out in the offensive end but have struggled defensively uh, and even with Nate Schmidt, he's been their, their uh, I'd argue, their steadiest two-way defenseman, but even he is more inclined to the puck-moving and transition side of things. And so I think there is certainly a need for Vancouver to have um, in their top four a little bit more um, to, kind of, to kind of replace the skill set that Chris Tanev had as sort of being a defensive mm-hmm. safety net that can be really solid in his own end, uh, can break up a lot of plays. And we saw even a guy like Jordy Ben. He's not a top four caliber defender, but when he stepped up into the lineup to play alongside Quinn Hughes, it was sort of a stabilizing force. So I think Ryan Graves is is really interesting because he's 25 years old. He's he's on a modest 3.16 million dollar cap hit, um, and he's a towering six foot five lefty who's averaged 19 minutes uh, a game the last two seasons for Colorado, playing that stay at home uh, style of game alongside. Like last year, he was the mainstay next to Kale McCarr. And so he was able to just be that steady defensive force who was just strong positionally, could block a ton of shots, broke up a lot of plays, was good was good defending the cycle, clearing out the front of the net. Um, he, he Graves is also Colorado's most used uh, defender on the penalty kill, which I think is an important skill set uh, moving forward. And so stylistically, it's just a lot of the same attributes that you – um, sort of have and, and eventually need to replace from Edler in terms of being a savvy defensive defenseman who can just be this uh, this bedrock for you in your own end. So he really intrigues me. And, and if you look at Colorado's situation, they're just so deep on the left side that a guy like Graves is expendable because they've already got Devin Taves, they've got uh, Bowen Byram, and they've got Sam Gerrard too. So even if you move uh, a guy like Graves that has been uh, good in their top four, they're still pretty loaded and, and, and fine without him. So I, I think Graves is pretty interesting. Uh, uh, the one caveat, though, is, you know, I look at Colorado's, you know, just overall system, and it's so conducive for a defenseman's success, right? Like, Graves is in an environment where he's spending most of his, where he spent most of his minutes with really talented line mates. So I think it's going to be important, um, even as you target Graves, his underlying numbers are pretty good in terms of driving play. But you're going to need to watch video and be sure that those same traits can translate to Vancouver, where a guy like him would have a little bit less insulation. Uh, Graves is 25 years old. He's got two more years after this one at 3.16, as Harm mentioned. Um, so let's take this a step back, Harm, because when when this happened with Vegas a couple years ago, one of the things that Vegas did was George McPhee, the general manager at the time, kind of locked in teams and didn't allow them to kind of make side deals. Um, to sort of free themselves up. So we haven't really seen this weaponizing of the expansion draft take place yet. If we look at Colorado and Ryan Graves as an example, what would be the motivation and what would Colorado be looking for from Vancouver if they were going to deal Graves to the Canucks? 
Right. And, and I think it's a good point that you mentioned it where um, I think hopefully teams have learned from that situation because the teams that did directly deal with Vegas rather than, you know, make these side deals kind of got screwed. Uh, you look at whether it's um, Anaheim losing Shea, uh, Shea Theodore. You look at uh, Florida losing Marcia So and Riley Smith. You look at Pittsburgh. For some reason, they gave Vegas a first round pick for the opportunity to select Mark andre Fleury, who has uh, been so good for them. And I think, you know, when you look ahead into this expansion process, I think if you're a team and you have, you know, a lot of talent, the, the key is going to be, you know, it's not the teams that, you know, there are some clubs out there where um, if you look at, say, uh, Tampa Bay is maybe one example. If they have such an embarrassment of riches and they already know they're going to lose someone, then I think there's less incentive for them to, uh, deal, make a side deal where it may just be better to, to just accept the fact that you're going to lose a pretty good player, not compound it by you know, trading another guy and losing a player in the expansion process. I think it's kind of the teams in the middle. Uh, I think Calgary is an example where they have some tough decisions to make, but they're not so deep uh, that um, you know, I think that that's a team that would be more motivated to make a trade. And if you look at Colorado's situation, I think a lot of it pertains to whether or not they're able to protect Devin Taves because um, right now I think Sam Gerrard and Kale uh, McCarr are obviously pretty um, easy, uh, e- easy sort of pr- uh, protections there. The, the complicating factor there is Eric Johnson. He's on a no-movement clause, so you know as of now he needs to be protected, but he may waive because Eric Johnson makes $6 million for the next two seasons. He's 32 or 33 years old. And he's got significant injury history. So if you're Seattle, I don't think they want to take Johnson if he waves and is available anyway. So if Johnson agrees to wave then and they can't protect Taves, then I think you're a lot more comfortable um, if you're Colorado looking to deal sort of graves. Because you know, if, if you're in a situation where, let's say, Colorado has to protect, uh, has to protect Johnson and now you have Taves and Graves left, uh, left unexposed, well, then if you're Colorado, if you're Joe Sackett, you're saying – okay, well, let's just lose one of these guys to Seattle rather than, let's say, Seattle takes Taves and now you're dealing away Graves. It doesn't make much sense when you could at least keep one of them. So I think Taves being protected is kind of the key to Graves being available, if that kind of makes sense. Um, And I think in terms of a potential return, um, it would have to kind of be, I think, an off-season move where Colorado, they're kind of all in this year and I don't think they'd want to peel off their roster. Um, I think, you know, the problem with Vancouver as they look into this expansion process is they don't have a lot of expendable trade assets that I think would entice teams. And so I think it would have to be almost like a futures move where um, you're maybe offering up, uh, offering up a pick or two. And that's important because that enhances the leverage of this trade deadline where now you've got to try and cash in on as many of your pending UFAs as you can because if you can collect, say, uh, a few mid-round picks, well, then all of a sudden, ahead of the expansion draft, you can go to a team like Colorado, and now you're in a position where you have an abundance of picks that you can offer them. And that's, I think, the key for Vancouver to be able to pull off, whether it's a move with Colorado, or whether it's uh, a move up front with a team like St. Louis. So um, that's why this trade deadline is so important. Harmon Dial from The Athletic joining us on air. Uh, Harm, let's say the Canucks don't end up exploring uh, the opportunity to to add a player that that could shake free from one of these teams. When you look at the roster right now, when you look at where this team is headed, what would you say is 
potentially the stickiest decision that they'll have to make for their own expansion list. Uh, for their own expansion list, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it, as it stands right now, I don't think there are any really tough decisions um, because when you go through the exercise, um, there just isn't, you know, especially with the guys that are kind of coming off of um, uh, of their contracts. I, I think coming into the season, in fact, there were maybe some tougher decisions to be to be made. But the fact of the matter right now is Gaudet and Vertanen have kind of played themselves out of like even if there is a scenario where one of them is unprotected, I mean, especially a guy like Vertanen where he is making two point five five million, you don't you don't really mind having him unprotected. And if Seattle does take him, well, then that's just extra salary cap space you've cleared. Whereas I think coming into the season, you know, that would have been you would have looked at Vertanen and said we should probably protect him because he adds uh, top nine value to this roster. So I think, um, quite honestly, there aren't that many tough decisions because especially again. I think on defense, especially, it's um, it's pretty it's pretty easy. Where let's assume that they resign one of um, Ben or Hamannik, and so they they maybe go Schmidt. Um, you know, I don't think they should protect Myers, but I think the organization still may. I think they still value him. So if they went Schmidt Myers, I mean, you're still in a position where Edler's UFA, so you don't have to protect him. Um, Hughes is, is exempt, and so then it's maybe you levy, and even in, in contrast to you levy, like there's no one really else um, who's a legit contender for that final slot. So I think the Canucks are um, in a pretty favorable favorable position. I don't think they really have any difficult positions. I think it's a pretty straightforward process. I mean, they're even in a position where they can easily protect a guy like Tyler Mott. Tyler Mott. They can easily carve out mm-hmm. a slot for Cole Lind. Um, and it's really like fringe guys, like uh, the Zach McEwen types. Um, uh, the the you know I'm kind of working my way down down the list, and um, the jo- a guy like Joni Gadjevich, who I mean, if you're losing a guy like that to expansion draft, I mean that I don't think you're losing too much sleep over it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, anything coming up between you and Tom at the Athletic that you uh, you want to plug? We've got a. Uh, I'll use the opportunity to to do a plug on on behalf of the athletic a one dollar sale going on right now. Uh, so if you're not subscribed to the Canucks coverage there, I encourage you to do so. As uh, anything uh, in the pipeline that can, you you want to entice people with? Yeah. So I, I think ahead of next uh, next week, we've uh, you know Grant uh, and I have got a lot of trade deadline coverage coming up. We're going to be looking at uh, ranking sort of or sort of figuring out the the trade value of the Canucks' potential. Um, assets that they can move. Um, I've got a couple of NHL stories. One talking about um, the experience. I've interviewed a bunch of NHL guys on what the experience of getting traded is like. So I'm really excited mm-hmm. to drop that feature um, and a couple of uh, other things on the go as well. So uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be a busy next couple weeks here. Yeah, sure is, man. Look forward to it. And uh, thanks for making the time for us today, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.